0: Hello there listeners, it's Susie New here, President of the Australian Society of Anesthetists and welcome to our podcast, Australian Anesthesia, where we talk about all things relevant to anaesthesia in Australia. When I first became President of the ASA, one of the first things that I had to do was to chair the Common Interest Group meeting, which was a little bit daunting to me at the time because I had never attended one of those meetings before. The Common Interest Group meeting is one that is attended by the senior leadership of the anaesthesia societies from the US, Canada, South Africa, the UK, and New Zealand, as well as Australia. Now, I was very fortunate in 2019 to meet some incredible women who were leaders in anaesthesia. The president of the American Society of Anaesthesiologists at the time was Linda Mason, with President-elect Mary Dale Peterson. The President of the Association of Anesthetists of Great Britain Island was Kathleen Ferguson. The Vice President of the Canadian Anesthesiologist Society was Dolores McKean. And the President of the New Zealand Society of Anesthetists was Catherine Hagen. There were also within that group a number of CEOs who were women. Also at that time, Yannick and Mellon Olsen was the President of the World Federation of Societies of Anesthesiologists, The WFSA. So it was a fantastic time for women in leadership in anaesthesia, and I wanted to bring some of those conversations to you. So in this episode, I'm chatting with Sheila Hart, who's the current president of the New Zealand Society of Anesthetists, about how she's finding the role and about her path to get there. At the end of this episode, I'll briefly share with you some of my thoughts on leadership and some of the work that the ASA is doing in this area. Okay, let's get into it
1: originally from the UK, going by your accent? South East London. I grew up and then I went to Sheffield University, which is central England. So what brought you out from the UK? So I had finished medical school and I worked for two years doing house jobs. So house officer year and SHO year, which I guess would be like a foundation year equivalent here now. And I sort of had lost my mojo with medicine. I was a little bit disillusioned with what the job entailed. And so I was looking to take a sort of time off and do effectively a sort of a delayed gap year because I hadn't done one before going to medical school. And I talked to lots of my friends and they were like, oh, you'd love New Zealand. And I I wanted English speaking um, and somewhere where I didn't need to do a licensing exam. So that kind of naturally led to Canada, Australia or New Zealand. And when I thought of New Zealand, I thought of kind of lush green bush. So it felt quite appealing. And I came over for one year. My plan was that six months would be work focused, six months would be lifestyle focused. And I ended up in Hamilton, which doesn't exactly get rave reviews when you look on the internet about what to do in Hamilton. But I loved it there. And I ended up staying there for four and a half years.
0: And is that when you started anaesthesia training?
1: Yes, So I can't recall the time when I thought I want to do anaesthetics, but I clearly had that on my agenda before I came to New Zealand because my plan was to go back and join the Northwest Rotation. And I'd done medical part ones in the UK, basically purely as a CV enhancer to improve my chances of getting on the anaesthetic training program. So clearly that was in my mind. But when I came to New Zealand, I did ICU for six months and there was two anesthesia trainees doing their ICU run and they were just so passionate about anesthesia. And I remember thinking, you know, I'd really love to feel that way about my job. And luckily I applied for residency in New Zealand and I was then about to go back to the UK for a few weeks holiday. And my residency came through just before I went on holiday, which coincided with me applying for an anesthetic SHO position, which prior to getting my residency, I would not have sort of chance of getting and then I went back to the UK for three weeks and I everyone I knew there in hospital medicine was miserable modernizing medical careers was being rolled out and no one really knew where I would fit if I came back suggesting that I'd probably have to go back and start from year one so it all just the stars just aligned and I started anesthetic training when I came back and have not looked back since
0: definitely not look back because you're now president of the New Zealand Society
1: yep So when did the handover happen? We handed over at the New Zealand Society meeting that we held in October, which was a really lovely opportunity to sort of get to do it and do it face to face, even though it was Kiwis rather than international, obviously.
0: And so when did you first get involved with the New Zealand Society?
1: So when I came back from my fellowship in June 2014 I I kind of had my eye on getting involved in something along these lines, I mean I was on the trainee committee and I was chair of the New Zealand trainee committee when I was a trainee so I thought I'd probably look at joining the New Zealand National Committee but there there just wasn't an opening when I returned and one of the current members of the NZSA executive tapped me on the shoulder and said would I be interested and I thought yeah let's give it a go and I, at that time Catherine Hagen was on board And we had been on the trainee committee together, so it was a friendly face that I knew. And the current president was David Kibblewhite, who was head of department at Waikato when I was there doing my training. So two people that I held in quite high regard were were currently sitting on the executive. So I thought there's got to be something good good going on there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you think it helped being tapped on the shoulder and also knowing other people who were on the executive?
1: Yeah, I think so because... Maybe it just gave me that little bit of impetus to to start doing it then rather than sort of delaying it. And maybe I might have just got involved in other stuff and not actually realised that the society was there. I mean, I, I have to say I'm probably like a lot of Kiwis in that I didn't really know much about what the societies did when I was a trainee. And maybe sort of under a little bit of an illusion or impression that the society was more focused on private practitioners, which is totally not the case. Um, And something that we've worked hard on over the last sort of five years to dispel that idea.
0: We face the same myth here, I think, in Australia. So what do you say to people when you're telling them about the New Zealand Society?
1: I think over the last few years, the development of our networks has really helped because all of our networks have leads in every DHB that are all public anaesthetists. So it's almost demonstrated sort of through action that we're not just for private anaesthetists. And that Really help develop or, I guess, showcase our commitment to community, which is for all anaesthetists in New Zealand. When I get asked, you know, what's the value of the society? You know, we have to tell people all the things that we do. And a lot of that stuff is behind the scenes, as you know, the advocacy work, the submissions takes up an awful lot of time, but isn't really that visible. So the networks have given us a bit more of a visible presence.
0: I'm very envious of the work that you guys have done with networks. I think we're still in our infancy with our paediatric network here, but hopefully that will develop
1: into something bigger. We do have a slight advantage in that we only have 20 public hospitals and we don't have the same private public mix that you do. And so it's easy to capture most groups through the public system.
0: It's been an interesting year. How was it taking on presidency of the society during the pandemic?
1: Well, I have to confess, it feels really like business as usual in New Zealand at the moment. And I, don't, I hate to say that because it sounds like I'm uh, gloating about it. But apart from obviously the international travel, the way that I'm working my day-to-day work is exactly the same as what it was pre-COVID. Having said that, despite the fact that we've got off very lightly in New Zealand, I'm definitely seeing and feeling myself that cumulative fatigue of the year. I read a very interesting article the other day that described it as your surge capacity being depleted and it's the stress of that initial Beginning of the wave in New Zealand. And although we're not ongoing, but there's still just that low level anxiety and stress about what will be that's quite fatiguing. So I guess when I took over in October, I knew it was coming, and maybe my energy wasn't the same as what it might have been if we were in the COVID era. And of course, My meeting schedule, a bit like yours, it's still busy, but none of the international travel is is associated with it. Definitely. Are you
0: still able to travel around the country quite freely?
1: Yeah. The only restrictions in New Zealand at the moment are to people coming in. And I think New Zealand was really quick with that second
0: little cluster that came out quick at re-locking down Auckland.
1: Interestingly, you know, even though it was a second wave and people were disappointed, there was good compliance with that as well. But generally, you know, that next day Auckland City was like a ghost town. You know, people just didn't come to work. Has Wellington been in lockdown at all
0: during the pandemic?
1: So, yeah, we went into lockdown in the the first wave. So we had, was it five weeks or six weeks of, of full lockdown? And then when Auckland went into lockdown with that last cluster, we went up a level. So gathering size was reduced and domestic flights were reduced, but we were still able to sort of go to work and do our leisure activities and all that kind of stuff that we would do as normal.
0: Did that also occur in the rest of the country? No,
1: no, it was everywhere.
0: Yeah, I didn't realise that that second one in Auckland also impacted the rest of the country. That's incredible compliance.
1: And what was really nice about that is there was lots of messages of support to Auckland, you know, the go on, Auckland, we're supporting you, you know, you're doing it for the rest of us. It's almost like the rest of the country was acknowledging that Auckland was sacrificing to keep the rest of us safe.
0: Mm, There's been a real togetherness about the New Zealand response to COVID. I wonder if it was also played out in the election, because I think Jacinta Redurn also won by a significant margin.
1: It was a landslide.
0: Yeah, wow, impressive. Did you find that there was much contention, speaking of elections, for presidency of the New
1: Zealand Society? Do you want me to be really honest?
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: so when I joined, David Kibblewhite, who was the then president, really wanted to get some succession planning in place. So when David took on the presidency, the society was in a pretty bad place. Uh, he openly says that he actually thought his job as president was going to be to close the society down. And so he, from really early on, he wanted a clear succession plan so that he knew that he would be able to hand it on and that the society could kind of plan. Um, So he convinced Catherine Hagen to take on the presidency, which she probably wouldn't have needed much convincing except for she was planning a third child. So David agreed to stay on. And very quickly, he had me in line as vice president. So The honest answer is there was no competition and we wouldn't have opened it up to somebody that hadn't been involved in the executive, at least for a short period of time. That's
0: definitely good governance to have someone that you know, who understands how things work. So how have you found it so far, being president?
1: Well, it's been quite interesting because my first job was to write my president's column and my blog. And I have to say, I did suffer from imposter syndrome and I felt these podcasts made me feel very inferior and I had a hard act to follow because I was like, I've got no idea what to write about and surely no one's that interested in what I want to write about. <laughs> um, so those were my two first two jobs and they came at a time that was really busy at work. So trying to sort of find the time to devote the mental energy to thinking about something that would be interesting to talk about. And then also our CEO has resigned We knew that she was going to resign. We didn't have a fixed date. But it means that the last sort of month I've been in a world that is new to me. So we've been vetting recruitment agencies, looking at job descriptions, having salary reviews all of that in anticipation of recruitment for the CEO. And of course, as you know, it's such a crucial role in our society that it could make or break us if we don't get the right person. So that feels a little bit stressful.
0: <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. And it, it, is, it is incumbent on the president to choose the CEO. Do you feel like you have been well prepared to take on that decision?
1: When I agreed to take on the presidency role, it was five years ago now. So I kind of said at the time, I felt really like I didn't have much training. I felt like I was quite junior to be taking it on. And of course, five years have passed. And over that five years, I've done a fair bit of work and management and leadership. And so it's a different arena in terms of it being a not-for-profit organisation and the governance that's required. But I feel like the step up in my managerial responsibilities outside of the society sort of hold me in good stead. And as a society, we have endeavoured to put us through the Institute of Company Directors course, which is a one week course, but actually it was really useful just in terms of outlining some of the responsibilities and getting that sort of bigger picture of how an organisation like ours works.
0: Have you done other things in terms of management and leadership training that you found useful?
1: I've done the Associate Fellowship of the Royal Australasian College of Medical Administrators. That was paid for by my hospital, actually, when I took on the deputy head of department, which I did two years ago. So that was quite useful looking at more hospital-based management and the bigger picture of health management, but obviously clearly useful in terms of appreciating the context where anesthesia sits in the bigger world of medicine good one how long does that take that program so when i did it it's changed now because it's an online course but when i did it it was three weekends and you just had to attend them and complete them to achieve the associate fellowship the only downside to it is it's quite expensive But like I say, I was very, very fortunate that the hospital paid for it because I was relatively junior taking on the deputy role. And I'm not sure what it's like in your hospital, but, you know, we're constantly going on about clinical engagement, but then don't actually offer any training so that the people who want to get involved feel equipped to do the job well.
0: I think that's a really good point. We're doing something similar. We're doing a Directors of Departments Development Day because there are a lot of Deputy directors and directors who find themselves in these roles trying to run an anaesthetic department who've had very little training. I think there's a good opportunity there for people to form those networks with each other.
1: And I mean, one of the biggest things for me as well was having a good mentor. So when I took on the role of deputy, I knew that Sally, the current chair of the New Zealand National Committee, was going to be the head of department. And I knew that I could learn lots. From her in that role. In terms of her being, say, a mentor, did
0: you ever actually ask her to be one?
1: Uh, I didn't ask her to be one because I was very fortunate to have Leona Wilson as my mentor. You've
0: got a power (laughs) team around you.
1: (laughs) So I had, up until relatively recently, had had regular contact with Leona as she nurtured me into my position. That's fantastic.
0: And Leona, people who don't know, was former president of the college... She was the first female president of the college. I didn't realise she was the first female president. Speaking of female presidents, how many female presidents has the New Zealand Society had?
1: Uh, Catherine was the first. Maybe we should fact check that one, Susie. And the next two in line are all women. And it's quite interesting actually talking about the makeup of our committee because we actually are very female dominant and also a relatively young committee at the moment which has its advantages but does also have its disadvantages in terms of, you know, we want to represent our members. Speaking of being a woman in a leadership role, how have you
0: found it? Have there been moments when you thought this is something that is happening because I'm a woman or wouldn't happen to a man?
1: It's interesting because I've sort of gone through my career and if you'd asked me a few years ago was there sexism or discrimination based on gender, I'd have been like, no, You've just got to be good at your job and you can succeed. And I think I'm fortunate in that I'm quite a strongly spoken and assertive woman. So that's probably seen me be quite successful and not subject to some of the same discrimination that other women might be. But a few years ago, I started sort of reading um, a few books on feminism and discrimination and gender discrimination. And I sort of quote, I don't know if it's Caitlin or Kathleen Moran in her book, How to Be a Woman. And she says, it's like someone gave me a pair of sunglasses. And when I put the glasses on, I could see sexism around me. When I put the glasses on, it it just like burnt my eyes because it was all around me. And once I started looking for it, then I could see it everywhere. And probably I'm aware of some experiences where you sort of get talked over in a meeting or you don't feel like your ideas get traction. But at the time, I was never really conscious that that, that's what it was. Um, But when you look back on it, you think, oh, it's probably just because you were a female. I don't think it's held me back. One of the things I really like in our anaesthetic department and our society is that we've got really good gender representation. What would
0: you say to women coming through who might be interested in taking on leadership roles, whether it be something in their department or hospital-based or something like the society?
1: I think they should make it clear that they're interested. So this is probably an impact of gender. You know, I think people assume that young women, particularly young women with children, aren't interested or don't have the time for those roles and they get overlooked. So I think they should make it clear that they're interested. And definitely in my role as deputy head, doing as much as I want to be transparent and offer roles open to everybody in the department, you know, I definitely will shoulder tap people, partly to help reinforce or to show them that we as a department believe that they've got what it takes to do the role, irrespective of you know how young their family is or their commitments outside of work. I think have been some good role models, which hopefully Sally and I are striving to create. And then I would have a confident or a mentor that can help support and guide them through that process.
0: You talked about Sally and yourself being good role models. And I I wonder, what are your visions for the society during your presidency?
1: So I would like to see the society to continue to grow. Clearly, our function is to serve our members um, and to offer value for them. And we're in a good position at the moment in terms of our member numbers. And I'd hate for that to go down under my watch. But I think strongly that we have an important role for advocacy. So we have a seat at the table and where anesthesia voice is heard. The other aspect that I think is crucial is our community. So it's, you know, maintaining those networks, maintaining the connections. And being supportive of our anesthetists, and I'd like to see that activity grow in a way that is sustainable, but then offering support to those networks and our members would be that in terms of education events. We've looked at the wellbeing aspect and the welfare aspects, and there's a lot in that space at the moment, for example, your projects, long lives, healthy workplaces. and so we really are keen to embrace that area, but don't want to duplicate what's already out there. Um, and so at the moment, they're probably just going to be supporting the organisations that are already doing it well and, and directing our members to that. One of the things that has fallen away this year, understandably from COVID, is our hospital visits. So David David Kibberwhite implemented a system of going around to visit the hospitals to connect with our members, to just let them know what we're up to, to see what their concerns were. And that was a really useful way of, of just bringing the society to people. And so that's something that I want to reinvigorate next year.
0: I really love those hospital visits.
1: It's satisfying as well, reaching out to the departments and going and seeing what's going on. It's a great opportunity to get to meet new people and hear what the issues are in different hospitals. And that's not the same everywhere.
0: I wanted to just ask you one final question, big question, which is, what do you think are some of the big things on the horizon for anaesthesia? 2020 was meant to be the year of reflection, instead it's been the year of turmoil.
1: <laughs> internationally or just nationally? I think internationally. For the
0: field of anaesthesia, what might be coming? What are the big impacts, the big threats to our profession?
1: Are we still going to be practising the same in 20 years' time? I could say something really controversial. Go on then. One of the things I worry about is the loss of my job, actually, through alternative providers. In New Zealand, we don't have nurse anesthetists at present but that's a constant I don't want to say threat because I don't mean it as a threat but a I guess a concern that my job in 20 years time wouldn't be the job that it is at the moment and that's what I really enjoy I guess what feeds that is the anesthesia workforce and ensuring that there's a sustainable workforce I mean, internationally, obviously, it's hugely under-resourced, but it's just distribution is part of the problem. So my other thing would be drug supply. I mean, COVID has really highlighted, particularly for us in New Zealand, how precarious our supply can be. And, you know, if we don't have drugs, how can we do our job?
0: Yes, I experienced that in Fiji when I was there. And during the emergency regulations, we stopped procuring anaesthesia medications. So we had shortages of adrenaline and lignocaine and marcaine and halothane and and, 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 and and I thought, you have to give me something to work with here.
1: What, what do you think are the big threats to anesthesia?
0: In Australia, I think if I had to put in one word, I think it's sustainability. And I think workforce sustainability is one of those. Globally, there is a shortage of anesthetists. And I think in Australia, as there are in the US, as there may be in New Zealand, that threat of role substitution With us at the moment, economic sustainability is a concern. We're seeing more, like in the US, more arrival of bundled fee payment models and heading very much down that path of managed care. The big concern is the environmental sustainability. I think climate-related health problems will become a bigger issue.
1: One thing that will be quite interesting, which is very New Zealand specific, is the referendum that voted in the End of Life Choice Act. So that's going to be, because that's nationwide, it'll be interesting to see how that is implemented and who does it. There has been a a few suggestions that anaesthetists would be the perfect people to administer IV medications. I'm not sure many of us would agree.
0: That is not part of our job description, sorry.
1: That will definitely be a role for the society. I've already emailed to say that we want to be at that table having a discussion around how it's implemented
0: Definitely. And I think this is one of those things that people don't realise that societies do in the background. We've got those connections. So when you've heard about that this group is developing these recommendations, it's an easy telephone call to get that foot into the door, which you can't do when you're an anesthetist working day to day in theatres. Little plug for the work of societies there. (laughs) So is there anything else that you feel you want to touch base on? Any words of inspiration for the next generation, particularly the women out there?
1: My very first phone call with David was when he phoned me to say, Would you be willing to come on the society after I'd been shoulder tapped and said yes, I'd be keen. And from that phone call, he said to me, Oh, you know, you could be president one day. And I, I sort of spent the next five years thinking, that could never be, you know, like, what have I got to offer as president of a society? And, you know, as I've got older and wiser, you know, I recognize the imposter syndrome voice and I kind of counsel myself that actually I've got a lot to offer but it still does sit there. I think everybody experiences it, but you still just got to get on and do it. And I guess for me, you know, I had a strong passion for advocating for our specialty. And that for me is bigger than just day-to-day clinical anesthesia. So that helped encourage me, I guess. In fact, still, when I have to get up on the stage, I'm like, am I really doing this? (laughs) Exactly. And then of course, things happen like your society magazine comes out and the front page of it is a big picture of your face. And I just want to hide.
0: (laughs) I think for me, it was doing all these webinars during COVID and not being able to get to a hairdresser. that I'm thinking, everyone else is probably thinking, oh, you know, I wonder what Susie, the president might say has been going off the ASA. And meanwhile, the president's thinking, geez, I wish I had a haircut. <laughs> uh, the secret thoughts of president eh? Hey? Well, look, thank you for your time today. It's been wonderful chatting as always. Thanks, Susie. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Sheila. I did say at the start that I would share with you some of my thoughts on leadership. But before I do that, I would like to just make one correction. We did go back and fact check and we found out that Catherine Hagen is the third, not the first female president of the New Zealand Society of Anesthetists. Sheila raised the very important topic of diversity in committees so that organisations such as ours can best represent our members. And that is one thing that is really important to me. Diversity is important not just based on gender, but on cultural background, education, socioeconomic status and age. One of the things that the ASA has done in order to address some of the challenges in becoming involved in committees is to have a policy to include parents who have young children. Because we could see that having young children might be a barrier to attending committee meetings, which are often held out of hours. So currently, if you are on a state committee and you are the parent of a young child or children, then we will pay for babysitting so that you can attend state committee meetings. We are reviewing this policy at the moment, so stay tuned. If anything, it's going to be even more inclusive rather than less. One of the things about having diverse opinion, thought, experiences on committees is it can make communication more challenging and it can make it more difficult to come to a decision as a committee. And there's always room for improvement when it comes to communication and leadership and management skills. One of the ways that we can improve is by doing courses and Sheila mentioned the Institute of Company Directors course and I'll put a link to the Australian version of that course in the episode notes. The ASA through the Public Practice Advisory Committee or PPAC has been hosting an event called the 4D event which stands for the Directors of Departments Development Day in order to support leadership development in Australia. It's open to directors of departments, deputy directors of departments, and those interested in pursuing leadership in their anaesthesia career. And it also offers an opportunity to meet others in similar situations so that we can share and learn and grow from our experiences, because that is a lot of how you learn in leadership. The next event will occur at the NSC, the National Scientific Congress, which will be held in Brisbane in July. The other thing that Sheila mentioned was the Long Lives Healthy Workplaces Toolkit. This was a toolkit that was designed by the Wellbeing SIG, known at the time as the Welfare of Anaesthetists SIG, of which the ASA is one of the parent bodies. The toolkit was designed here in Australia and provides a framework to support good mental health in anaesthetic departments. It was funded by the ASA, and also in kind by EveryMind, and we're very grateful to EveryMind and the expertise they brought to developing this mental health framework. For those of you interested in that toolkit, I'll share a link to that in the episode notes. There's going to be a launch of more resources coming soon, so do keep an ear out for that. The last thing that I wanted to talk about that Sheila mentioned was those interested in taking on leadership roles to come forward and put up their hand. So I'm looking forward to hearing from those of you who are interested in taking on a leadership role. Maybe I'll bump into you at the next 4D event or the NSC. And I'm always happy to have a chat with people who are interested in joining an ASA committee. Okay, in the meantime, hope you stay safe out there. This podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists. More podcasts can be found on the ASA website asa.org.au. Music was La Dance by Maidan, which can be found on the free music archive website. We hope you enjoyed listening.